Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. All right. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm Chris the Chi Manchu, and I'm joined here by not Justin Burke, but with our wonderful showrunner and, and producer for today, Sam. What's up, Chris? Hey, what's up, man? Our guest tonight is Dr. Ina St. Ange, and she's here to talk to us about airway clearance. So first, let's, uh, Sam, do you want to remind us what the show's about? Yes, I will take your position, Chris. So uh, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. Um, We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. So tonight, we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Ina St. Ange. She is a pediatric pulmonologist and assistant professor of pediatrics at UMass Chan Medical School. She is the co-director of the UMass Pediatric Cystic Fibrosis Center and co-founded the UMass Pediatric Aerodigestive Program. She is passionate about medical education and quality improvement work. So tonight, she teaches us about pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic airway clearance regimens, the patients who would benefit the most from them, and when to call your friendly neighborhood pulmonologist. So before we get to it, I have another haiku developed by AI about our topic today. Clear airways, young one. Help them breathe easy, free from mucus and congestion. Well done. Well done. So we are back. I have not Justin, but I have Sam with me today. And I have a fantastic guest, Dr. Ina Singh Anj. Ina, is it okay if we call you by your first name? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. So we're going to start off with some softball questions. Um, do you mind uh, helping us, uh, helping our listeners know who you are? Are you able to give us a, a little short, uh, a little short one-liner on who you are? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm a pediatric pulmonologist. I'm a mom of two. I have two boys. We live in New England. We love it here. We love having all the seasons. Um, We spend as much time as we can outside. And professionally, I mostly gravitate towards cystic fibrosis care, along with all other general pulmonary stuff. Fantastic. Fantastic. Sam, do you want to go off with the first question? Yeah, absolutely. So We're just going to hit with the big one here. So what's the best advice you've ever received as a learner? That is such a great question. And I have the same answer for that every time. And I don't know if he listens, but one of my senior residents when I was an intern, Dr. Mark McGill, who's a pediatric cardiologist, um, gave me the best advice that I'll never forget when I was a stressed out intern and felt like I wasn't learning anything. Um, He said, just keep showing up, just keep showing up. And by the time you finish whatever this, you know, point in your training is, you will have learned everything that that they wanted you to learn. So just keep coming back day after day. And it's so true. And it really applies to, I think, all levels of, of medical training. I love that. I love that. Keeping sight of, you know, making making those baby steps, you're going to get there. Everything's designed. You're going to do all right. I think that's that's great. You know, I'm looking at our script and uh, Sam, we have a lot to talk about here. Maybe we should just dive in. Don't you think? We do have a lot to talk about. Yeah, um, that's great advice. And let's just let's just start with a case from um, Catch Light Children so we can get to that poem stuff that you were talking about. By the <laughs> way, I, I, um, I did so, not agree to that the name of our first patient. So Sam, <laughs> you, you did a great job on this. And so you're going to have to say it out loud and be ashamed. 
Oh my God. I know. I am ashamed of this, but this is Air Way. So he is a four-year-old male with a history of prematurity. So he was born at 32 weeks. It also a history of IVH and resulting cerebral palsy, global developmental delay, G-tube dependence due to unfortunately aspiration and hypotonia. He presents to catch like children's due to cough, congestion, and respiratory distress. Turns out his rapid viral panel is positive for adenovirus. And he's admitted to the general pediatric service for frequent suctioning and respiratory support. So we're just going to start off real basic. So what physiologic mechanisms exist to prevent buildup of mucus and poor airway clearance? Yeah, so that's a great place to start. And I think we always want to go back to our physiology, right? If we're not sure what's going on, that can always sort of help to reset things. Um, And there's a limited number of ways to move mucus out of the lung. So, and this is for all patients, kids, adults, anybody. At the most distal level, you've got your alveolar macrophages, right? These are what are most active in pneumonia and sort of other types of infiltrative processes. And then moving up your tracheobronchial tree, so closer um, to the top, you've got your mucociliary clearance, right? We remember cilia that help to move mucus up out of the lung, and then cough. And one important principle to remember here for the rest of the episode is to move mucus, you need airflow. And so all of the mechanisms that we're going to discuss do something to augment either airflow, airway resistance, the secretions themselves, or that cough. And in order to have an effective cough, you really need that muscle strength to move things up and out. Awesome. That is really a good place to start because we're going to ask a lot of questions about some of the uh, some of the devices and whatnot we use. But in this case, why don't you, and I'm sorry, Chris, about the name. So um, why don't you think AIR will have trouble with these? So here we've described this kid with essentially what I'm going to assume is neuromuscular weakness, right? We have a former preemie. Mm-hmm. We have a neurologic insult with the IVH, um, the cerebral palsy, delays, hypotonia, aspiration, all these things. Um, So he's got many, many risk factors for impaired airway clearance. And as a disclaimer, there are different considerations for children with tracheostomy tubes, and we're not going to get as much into that today. So for him, I want to break it into sort of three buckets. So the first is aspiration. And remembering that his G-tube will reduce the amount of either formula or food that is being aspirated, but we're still going to have aspiration of oral secretions and potentially reflux material. And these set up a baseline level of airway inflammation. Um, No matter how much we try, there's still this this baseline level that we need to to fight against. You know, one of my mentors used to say that the lung does not do well when called upon to be a digestive organ. And so it really does not do well when it keeps getting hit from, from above with aspiration. You mentioned hypotonia, and often this translates to airway tone too. And so that will impact his ability to clear secretions. The second sort of bucket is this impaired cough clearance. If we think about what a normal cough requires, right? You have to have the muscle strength to take a big breath in and pause for a moment against um, closed vocal cords or what we call a closed glottis. And then you need the chest wall strength to expel all of that out. And kids with neuromuscular weakness have often have impaired cough clearance as well. And then the third bucket is that mucociliary ladder. It doesn't necessarily apply to to kids like this patient, um, but those with bronchiectasis, for whatever reason, significant tracheobronchomalacia or other airway disorders are going to have trouble um, with that ciliary clearance too. So one question I have is going back to the number one, which is aspiration you you brought up. You were talking about G-tube reducing the amount of aspiration. So it's true when you put in G-tube, you're not stopping entirely. They still may aspirate. Is that true? 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And even with post-pyloric feeds, which means if you're not feeding the stomach directly, but say you have, for example, a GJ tube, so you're feeding um, after the pylorus, you're still going to be at risk for aspiration from above, so to speak. With that bulbar weakness um, and that hypotonia, you just don't necessarily have the coordinated swallow to, to fully protect your airway. And so we talk a lot with our patients like like this one about ways to mitigate um, what's called sialuria or significant drooling, managing oral secretions, reflux, um, because all of those things can set you up for ongoing pulmonary aspiration. That's awesome. Um, and this is a great place to start because now I'm going to start asking a bazillion questions about each of the, uh, about each of the things that we use and why this works and great that we set up some physiology and at least set up why this might not work in our patient here. So maybe we'll just start with some of the non-pharmacologic adjuncts before we get into meds. What are some of those, those non-pharmacologic adjuncts that you see to assist with airway clearance? And you can just kind of list some and talk about them. And if, um, and if we don't get to some, I'll just keep asking questions about more. Sure. No problem. So there are several different mechanisms and devices, and I think it's important to start with the there's a lot of trade names here and a lot of brand names for these devices. And so um, it's important to understand the physiology of why they work. And it doesn't necessarily matter which, you know, trade name or brand name that you get. Suctioning is important, you know, um, external suction. A lot of our patients have that at home as well. There's different types of positive expiratory uh, pressure flutter type devices. So these are all intended to increase airflow and to get air behind whatever mucus is down there. If you can't get air behind something, you cannot clear it out. And so having that a little bit of expiratory distending pressure of the airway to decrease resistance, open the airway up so you can get a little bit of air behind that mucus and allow it to, to come more proximally. And then there's mechanical in exsufflation devices. So these would be things like a cough assist machine, which is a trade name. Um, these help to augment that cough that is so important and can be lacking in these kids. And so it, it tries as best as we can to mimic a natural cough. So you get a positive pressure breath in, there's a brief pause, and then there's a negative pressure out. And you do it in a few cycles, and then you finish with suctioning. And then you always, always, this is really important for our kiddos in the PICU who, who our residents might be helping to manage, you always want to end on a positive pressure breath because you don't want to de-recruit the lung and then just leave your patient that way. So you always want to re-recruit at the end of a, a treatment like that. There's a few others, you know, chest PT and, and external devices, um, things like a, a what's called a high-frequency chest wall oscillation or a vest. Those can help from a variety of standpoints, but are most effective in kids that have established bronchiectasis. They don't necessarily create a whole lot of distending pressure. It's more creating these shear forces that force the mucus off the airway wall and then can help to move it a little bit more proximally. But you do want to use those with some other form that helps augment cough. One question I have about some of these cough devices is, you know, do you just assess and say, oh, you know, this, this patient, this child has you know, SMA or some other reason to have weakness. Is there a way you can actually like measure their effective cough and say, hey, this is one who would be, we've reached this threshold that we're not coughing strong enough that a cough assist device would be useful in this situation. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So, so yes, we can measure what's called a cough peak flow. This is done in the pulmonary function lab um, for kids that can coordinate it. So you do need to be able to have, you know, the ability to follow instructions. You can do it with either a mouthpiece or a mask. And so you don't necessarily need a lot of bulbar tone there, but we measure it in the lab. And then there are certain criteria for what is considered ineffective or um, higher risk or lower risk for cough strength. Do you always have to do this testing before you do a star cough assist device? Or is it just sort of like, we may just try the cough assist device and then we'll like, okay, we'll go to, you know, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I just don't know like what the type of workflow is. Yeah, no, so you don't need the the formal PFTs because, again, not every patient can do it. Think of our kiddos, you know, under age five that, you know, can not really do normal PFTs just because of following directions and things like that. And and um, so you don't need the pulmonary function testing to prescribe a cough assist or to get it approved or these devices, I should say. It's really based on your clinical assessment. And often, you know, when kids are sick is a great time to assess the strength of their cough. Anyone can do that at the bedside. If you've heard them cough while you're in the room talking with the family. Did it sound breathy? Did it sound strong? Did it sound like they were able to move anything with it? Or can you still hear a ton of secretion rattling in the chest? And I'm going to jump just a tiny bit, but you know, between these devices, we kind of mentioned, so the uh, insufflation, exufflation device, um, the flutter device, and then even non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, we talk about BiPAP, um, which you'll probably get to in a second. But all three of those, to me, it sounds like have positive pressure, get behind the mucus, try to get air back there to hopefully get you to clear it. Is there one that's better than the other? Like, you know, you know what I mean? Um, so like, why are we even doing the flutter device, for example, when we can do the, you know, mechanical insufflator, exufflator? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think they all just work a little bit differently in different disease states. And it's the best one is whichever your patients are going to tolerate, right? The positive expiratory pressure flutter type devices. So that these are things like bubble pep, acapella, aerobica. There's no external pressure generation with those. It's not hooked up to a machine. These are handheld devices that the patient needs to be able to generate their own strength and flow. Whereas a cough machine, um, a vest or chest PT, non-invasive positive pressure, other things like um, intrapulmonary percussive ventilation machines, these are all hooked up to other power sources, so to speak, and help to provide a little bit more support for these kids that can't generate their own flow rates compared to something like a flutter device. And is there any downside to having, you know, that... uh extra, you know, extra, you know, mechanical pressure, for example? So with everything, there's there's pros and cons. Um, you do want to make sure that you've titrated the settings as best you can in-house so that you're not um, making a patient uncomfortable. But they have been, specifically the cough machines, have been specifically studied in infants um, and in children with significant myopathies and muscle weakness, they, they are safe in that population and quite effective. Downsides with any type of mechanical device are going to be equipment failure, battery problems, you know, losing power, those types of things that aren't unique to these specific devices. Sorry, I did interrupt you, though, as you were going through the list here. Um, so we were left off as before, of course, I, uh, I jumped back to that question. You had left off, I think, on um, trade name Vest. I apologize about the um, the actual um, 
non-trade name version as well as chess PT and things like that is where you were. Are there any other ones that you, um, any other non-pharmacologic uh, adjuncts to talk about? Um, so you did bring up the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. So that will be helpful for airway clearance for all patients because that really does help get this air down and behind the mucus, even if you're not strictly hypoventilating, um, meaning retaining CO2, then that is still going to help with getting the air down where it needs to go. Um, and then there are other devices that I briefly alluded to, and there are a variety of different trade names for these that are all considered intrapulmonary percussive ventilation um, with high-frequency oscillation superimposed on some level of PEEP, essentially. And so you do get the benefit of um, distending expiratory pressure, and then you can add an oscillation component to that to help with the shear forces of getting the mucus off the airway wall. Excellent. And one, um, one, one device, maybe, maybe we talked about it and I, I somehow miss it, um, incentive spirometry. Are you able to speak a little bit on that? Um, this has come out recently. Uh, I'm also an adult practitioner. And back in December, there was an article from you know, Journal of Hospital Medicine uh, from their Things We Do For No Reason talking about the use of incentive spirometry in, in post-op for adults, saying that there's not a lot of, not a lot of evidence. Um, do you... Do, can you speak to that at least in our in our kiddos? Yeah, I can try. Um, I I would have to go back and take a peek at the literature more specifically for children, but I think there are no downsides to to incentive spirometers um, that are coming to mind. These are super easy. You can do this as young as kids, like two or three, with just bubbles or pinwheels or pretend blowing out birthday candles. The idea is a big breath in, a small breath hold if you can. The hold is important because that allows a little bit of extra time for that air to get down to those distal airways. Um, and again, the, the idea here is just getting as much air as you can down as distally as you can to help move everything up and out. I, I feel like blowing bubbles and pinwheels are cheaper devices than those plastic things. Just to clarify, actually, during the Things Do For No Reason article, they say actually that the main harm is how much it costs like medical systems annually. Apparently, they spend about $1 billion annually in these devices, and they're not super useful for adults. So, But I think if we get pinwheels for all the kids, I think that's probably a lot cheaper, my guess. Is. Yeah, they could make their own, right? Bring them a little craft kit and make your own pinwheel and then do your incentive spirometry. Love it. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually surprised, Chris, that that piece of plastic costs that much money. That's, um, although we do use a lot of them. So, I mean, how many times do you walk in and there's just one sitting in plastic by the patient's bedside that's never been opened and they probably just got home? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. But that's actually a good uh, transition to talk about kind of some of the data. Um, you know, we talk about all these devices, um, and especially like chest PT, this comes up for everybody asked this question, you know, is there any data for any of this? Um, should we be doing it because it actually is going to work or do we just do it because there's no downside? Um, it's probably a mix of both. So, you know, most of the data in airway clearance in general comes from the cystic fibrosis population, or if it's not that, the what's called non-CF bronchiectasis. So kids who have bronchiectasis for some other reason besides cystic fibrosis, and that can be a variety of different things. There definitely is solid data for the mechanical inexifflation in neuromuscular disease, specifically spinal muscular atrophy um, patients and children. So there's very solid data for those machines being both effective, decreasing hospital length of stay, increasing quality of life, um, and all of those things. 
Do you ever see the use of like some of these uh, easier devices like Flutter devices and say kiddos um, with uh, viral illness? Uh, that's a great question. So not typically. I don't know that there's a reason you couldn't, but I don't think it's necessarily been studied to improve airway clearance in children without other pulmonary comorbidities. Definitely cystic fibrosis is the target population there um, because most of them don't have um, you know, other neuromuscular insults on top of their CF, not that they couldn't, but most of them don't. And so they're, they can often coordinate those types of devices that require um, bulbar tone, you know, enough muscle strength to generate those higher flows on their own. And so, yeah, so that's perfect also for, um, for the next question here, which is, you know, what is the indication to actually starting these devices? So what do you need to see? You kind of alluded to this earlier about like you walk into the room like, hey, their cough isn't that good. I can tell that they have some gunk still up there. But, you know, when would you recommend starting them is a better question. Yeah, I think it depends on your disease process um, and what we know about, you know, how quickly the complications can ensue for some of these neuromuscular patients. So our patients with, we've mentioned SMA a few times, but that's one that really hits hard in infancy. And so we're going to start those kids much sooner than some of our former preemies that maybe have a lot more strength and are able to to sustain their lung health a little bit longer. Um, Loss of ambulation is a big um, sort of milestone in kids with neuromuscular disease. So once they do, in our Duchenne's population, for example, um, once they are um, wheelchair dependent and things like that, once they start losing that much strength, then we we ratchet things up pretty quickly. But for for a kid like um, the one in our our case scenario here, I think he was four years old, he probably would have already been started on some baseline regimen by most uh, pulmonologists, I would guess. And and you don't need you know fancy testing or or CTs looking for bronchiectasis. You can tell from your clinical exam how how well patients are able to clear their airway. Well, thank you so much for going over all of those uh, non pharmacologic uh, interventions because I think. We often see, you know, I know back when I was an intern in med student, I would see a lot of these things and I had no idea what they were. And so I think that's super helpful for a lot of us or even just going over some of the physiology and how they work was, is great for a uh, great review for a lot of us. Um, so let's move on to some pharmacologic treatments. Um, can you explain maybe some of the broadly, what are the big buckets of the types of pharmacologic treatments that we will see or will use? Yeah, definitely. So you'll see lots of different things either in the ICU or just in the hospital in general. Uh, Bronchodilators are commonly used. We can talk about indications there. Uh, What we call mucolytics. So these are drugs that change either the viscosity or the quality of the secretions. Um, You know, anticholinergics or other drying agents are used. And then acid suppression, there's pros and cons there, as well as other anti-inflammatory medications. Awesome. Maybe we'll start with bronchodilators. I see this all the time. Um, just like, all right, just put them on, uh, put them on albuterol around the clock. Um, so why is that helpful for these patients who might not have, uh, might not have asthma? Yeah. So, so first of all, if they have asthma, absolutely, you should, you should use it. There's nothing to say that a, a kiddo like the one you described in our case couldn't also have comorbid asthma. Um, but even without that, we do often use albuterol or other bronchodilators like it to help reduce airway resistance before giving mucolytics like we'll talk about. There are some in vitro data that suggests that albuterol can improve ciliary beat frequency. And so we do use it outside of asthma to help augment airway clearance. 
and maybe those mucolytics as well. As you mentioned, the bronchodilators have to come first. So why is that the case? And what would you recommend from a mucolytic standpoint? Sure. So so not every patient requires a bronchodilator ahead of time, but some of the mucolytics can be more bronchospastic. And in particular, I'm thinking about hypertonic saline. That's either 3% or 7%. We don't tend to use anything um, higher than 3% outside of the cystic fibrosis population, but they can have a bronchospastic effect. And so you can think about your, your bronchodilator as a bit of a pre-med, if you will, um, if they need it, but not everybody does. And then other mucolytics are Dornase Alpha. Um, we don't really use a whole lot of N-acetylcysteine in pediatrics, um, at least in, in our practice here. So hypertonic and Dornase are the big ones. And there is some decent data for hypertonic saline and normal saline in non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis but not in other conditions, not in bronchiolitis, not in pneumonia. Um, and then for, for Dornay's alpha specifically, this is not recommended for use outside of CF. There are data that um, have shown that it can be harmful when used outside of that. And so as tempting as it is to throw all these things to try to help your patient you know, clear the secretion as much as you can, we know that using Dornay's outside of cystic fibrosis can reduce lung function and increase exacerbation rates. So it's not recommended. And because some of these are, sorry, Chris, just to add to this question about hypertonic, for example, because that seems like the probable med that I would be prescribing as a um, as a mucolytic. Um, I heard that you can only give it so many times a day. Is that a true statement? So generally, I've not seen it used more than every six hours. That would be a little bit on the higher side. We typically will use it if we're going to twice a day. And you don't want to pair it with Dornay's, meaning in the same treatment, because that hypersalinic environment can have effects on the efficacy of Dornay's. So it would be albuterol can be used around the clock, but you'd probably do twice daily hypertonic. Um, is there a reason specifically behind that? Or is that mostly, I mean, clearly with the Dornay's and with uh, some of the other things, but is it because hypertonic is a little bit hard on the on the lungs? It is can be why? a little bit irritating, yes. And so certainly if you're seeing okay. any, you know, blood tinged mucus or anything like that, you do want to back down on it. The idea, since we um, I neglected to mention, is that that extra salt content is thought to draw more water content into the mucus. And so if you have really thick secretions, sometimes hypertonic can be helpful to thin things out a little bit. Awesome. And then hopefully that would be easier to cough up and perhaps with one of our insufflator exafflator devices <laughs> to, to connect it all together. All right. Awesome. My next question is about like the use of maybe anticholinergics, because we always think about anticholinergics as something that can sort of dry you out, but uh, maybe even uh, like ipotropium is sort of an anticholinergic, but we also see that paired off with uh, bronchodilators. Can you explain? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, things like ipratropriams, copolamine, glycopyrrolate, um, these are all drugs commonly used to, to mostly treat sialuria, honestly, so drooling, which, like we talked about, can be a significant problem for aspiration. Ipratropriam specifically is also a bronchodilator, so we will sometimes use that for that effect as well. Um, but you do need to be careful in over-drying um, these patients. And so thinking about oral hygiene, you don't want to induce any dental decay because that makes everything worse. Um, and in particular for our tracheostomy patients, over-drying can lead to plugging of your trach tube, which can have obviously devastating consequences. Yeah. And follow-up question to that piece. You know, we just talked about hypertonic and the um, and the mucolytics being the whole point is bringing water in and essentially thinning out the secretions. And then are we giving one of these medicines to dry them out? So, um, so when someone 
we're going to get to Ayers' case in a second once we go through all these to like what we would do for this patient specifically. But does it seem like glycoperolate really is a baseline medicine for something like sialuria? But if you're actually in respiratory stress, if you're an infection, if you're anything like that, is that a medicine that I, number one, should leave if they are still getting it? Or number two, never start it? Or number three, take it away? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, it's pretty easy to titrate when when kiddos are sick. And so I would say if it's on their med list at baseline, it's all about your bedside assessment. So I will often ask families, you know, how many shirts are, are you going through? How many bibs are you going through? Just trying to get an idea of, of the level of sialuria. And when kids are sick, can either go up or go down. And so you do need to titrate that a little bit during illness, and it's different for every child. So to answer your question about, you know, the hypertonic versus something like ipratropram, we probably wouldn't be using those in the same scenario or the same day for example, um, because of the opposite effects. And so you, you really have to look at your patient and say, you know, ask your bedside nurses, how often are you suctioning? Is it every 30 minutes or is it every three to four hours? If, if the suctioning needs are so high and the secretions are so overwhelming, then maybe you want to choose a drying agent um, versus, you know, a hydrating agent. And then I think the last, well, actually, there's probably a couple more things we talked about. Um, so I apologize. I'm going to ask an easier question first, and I'm going to get to my really hard question about um, about anti-inflammatories. But for the beginning ones, um, the acid suppression, you had mentioned acid suppression, then we kind of moved on. Would you mind just going back to that and talking a little bit about what you think there? Sure. So this is controversial. Um, my GI colleagues may have other opinions. I think significant reflux that needs treatment independent of any pulmonary problem should obviously be treated appropriately. But I think most pulmonologists will reserve aggressive reflux treatment for when we've maxed out other therapies. The idea is that an acidic refluxate material is thought to be more injurious to the airway if aspirated, but there's no strong data to support that. So it's not our first go-to. And I guess the harder question is if kids who have a difficulty clearing their airways, kids that have difficulty with their cilia, kids that have difficulty you know, coming up with this cough, are there any benefits to inhaled corticosteroids to go along with? Because you also talked about, you know, um, aspiration being a super, super inflammatory problem. So we'll start with inhaled corticosteroids, and then maybe you can comment on some of the other anti-inflammatories. Sure. So um, inhaled corticosteroids are not supported outside of comorbid asthma. So again, your your patient could easily have asthma on top of this, and in that case, it would be appropriate but we don't typically use those as anti-inflammatories in uh, outside of asthma. Oral steroids, you know, maybe for a pneumonitis type picture or like a true asthma exacerbation triggered by a viral illness, for example, like adenovirus in this patient. But, you know, the other anti-inflammatory that I'll touch on is azithromycin, which this, this has really been extrapolated from the cystic fibrosis literature, um, where it is supported in certain CF populations to use uh, three times weekly, so typically Monday, Wednesday, Friday, low dose azithromycin as an anti-inflammatory. And so this has been you know, bleeding over into other pulmonary realms. There's not a lot of good data for that. It's, it is extrapolated from CF, but some of our neuromuscular kids will end up on that as an anti-inflammatory. How do the, how do the uh, 
infectious disease doctors feel about feel about, feel about that? So it's tough because it you know in the CF population where it, it all comes from, um, it's it didn't it wasn't always controversial. It's getting a little bit more controversial, but all of the longer term studies supported that there was no statistical difference um, in the microbiota or um, changing your pseudomonas acquisition rates or things like that. That is that is changing a little bit, um, but it's dosed completely differently, right? It's not like a Z pack. Um, and so it's the way that you're using it, you're targeting a different mechanism. Yeah. And I guess for the CF patients too, they, they're, as you mentioned, their microbiota or at least the, what they're colonized with is way past macrolides. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'm sure the resistance mechanism for macrolides is not really going to get into the fact that they are, may or may not be resistant to like something like tobramycin or something. Um, all right. So that, that's a total deviation um, from what we were talking about there. <laughs> just to maybe, Chris, do you have any more questions? Or maybe I'll just quickly summarize the things that we talked about here. Yeah. So it sounds like from a pharmacologic standpoint, we talked about bronchodilators. Um, certainly what they do is they sound like they know both dilate the airway and they can also augment some, um, some mucociliary clearance. And then the mucolytics, um, hypertonic is probably the one we'll be using that's not um, in CF patients because we don't really use acetylcysteine in kids. And then you got to balance that with the, uh, with the glycoperylate, scopolamine or um, other like ipratropium. And it sounds like all the other pieces are really kind of controversial to begin with entirely. So Chris had actually asked this question earlier, and I think this is probably a good place to go back is where, where do you, what tests do we need to initiate any of these medicines, both from a, you know, non-pharmacologic standpoint to a pharmacologic standpoint? Um, You had mentioned PFTs. Is there any other tests that we need ahead of time? So... The only other one that you would need, so to speak, would be if you were trying to get, you know, a high frequency chest wall oscillation device like a vest or something similar. And in order to get those types of things approved, you generally need to demonstrate that your patient has bronchiectasis. And so either a bronchoscopy or a chest CT would be the, the best ways to demonstrate that. Um, apart from that, you know, PFTs are what I would consider a bonus. You certainly don't need them. Um, some places lean more or less on impedance probes for reflux, but it's certainly not necessary. And then the last one is a sleep study, and that gets more into that non-invasive positive pressure ventilation if you do need to demonstrate chronic hypoventilation in order to get uh, positive pressure covered. And I imagine most of these tests, except for the CT scan, are really hard to achieve inside the hospital when you have a patient admitted. Is that play a role? I know these are all kind of recommendations, but not like, you know, required. Um, would you still recommend the CT scan if you were inpatient at that time um, or, or kind of leave it all and go on your clinical exam? Yeah, I think it depends on the history. If you have a kiddo who's being, being admitted for their eighth aspiration pneumonia for the year, I think you can make a strong case for looking for um, sequelae of that in the form of bronchiectasis and really looking at that CT to see if it can help you to improve their services and get more airway clearance devices for them at home. I think the others are probably just a bonus. Awesome. Um, so actually, maybe we should just return to the case itself yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and say, you know, so AIR we talked about was this four-year-old with unfortunately prematurity as well as cerebral palsy, global developmental delay, aspiration, hypotonia, you know, and he's coming in with certainly um, respiratory symptoms to go with. What would the prescription that you would recommend for um, for this case for Mr. AIR? Sure. So um, I was really hoping that you would give me a blood gas to interpret, but that's okay. I think every <laughs> pulmonologist that you're going to call for a consult is going to want that blood gas. 
<laughs> but that's okay. We can do without it. Um, so we need to help this kid get air moving so he can start to clear some of these secretions from his viral infection. Um, so I would probably start with a trial. And again, these are low settings with your bedside respiratory therapist who's really going to help you here of some type of oscillatory device plus some sort of mechanical in exhalation, so some type of cough assist machine um, to help re-expand him after. Um, I may use just some normal saline nebs if the secretions are really thick and hard to move, or on the other hand, maybe some ipratropium if the secretions are just overwhelming the suction capabilities. Um, you could think about adding albuterol in, it's certainly not required, um, but we do wanna be mindful of his G-tube feed so we're not over distending his belly with all of this and inducing vomiting, aspiration, et cetera. So you were saying you're hoping that we got a blood gas. At what point in this case do you think you would recommend that we get one? And if we do get one, can I get Venus? <laughs> um, I'm going to prefer a capillary if you um, uh, capillary. if you can't get an arterial. So my my order of preference would be ABG capillary and then venous, and that's fine. Um, you know, I think it depends on the practices of your institution, whether, you know, children tend to get these in the emergency department as they're, they're coming in or um, in the pediatric ICU or not at all. You know, I think there's a case to be made depending on each patient that, you know, perhaps you don't need that. Um, but I think if you're, if a child is sick enough and particularly in our neuromuscular kids, we, I'm really going to stress that because they're not going to show you increased work of breathing, right? They don't have that muscle tone. They're not going to look like they're working until it's it's already far too late. And so you really want to pick up on hypoventilation, meaning CO2 retention early so that you can help intervene with some some positive pressure. And then so if you we, you know if patient just looked as exactly as you described, we say we should be like, "Hmm, we should probably get a blood gas. If that blood gas now we see is we'll say 7255, um, you're going to say, hey, this kid needs BiPAP over the cough assist, or do you think the cough assist is going to actually help enough that we could clear, um, that we kind of, you know, can start getting some move on, clear some of the obstruction, and then all of a sudden maybe this obstructive lung disease wouldn't be as bad as we thought? That's a great question. I think it's going to depend a little bit on how sick they are, so to speak, and, and are they hypoxic on top of this? How um, severe is their current illness. I The gas you described, so 7.255, right? We've got a respiratory acidosis here, presuming that your bicarb is otherwise unchanged. Um, I would put a child like that on BiPAP at least for maybe an hour or two and then recheck where you are after doing that initial um, cough assist treatment. Awesome. Sam, does our does our kid get better? Yes. Let's, um, let's say the kid gets better. Um, so air goes on a mechanical uh, insufflation, exufflation actually gets one of those oscillating devices with our um, with our respiratory therapists. We'll say we use normal saline with a little bit of albuterol and, um, sorry, albuterol nebs, and, uh, and he gets better in, let's say, two days or so. Um, the question that follows that is now he did require these things. Should we be sending him home on some sort of airway clearance regimen? And what do you think that would be? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I would probably send a, a patient like this home with a few things. Um, definitely a nebulizer machine and suction machine, um, even if it's just normal saline and not necessarily all these other things, just to help with a little bit of that airway clearance in the home environment. I think because he's now been hospitalized and, you know, I'm not sure if this is his first admission or, or somewhere after that, but I think you could make a strong case for a mechanical in exaflator for a kiddo like this with his history at home. 
And when they're doing the home piece, kind of, you know, we kind of talked about some of our regimens um, here. Actually, let me back that up for a second and just double check. Normal saline nebs, if you don't use hypertonic saline, but you use normal saline nebs, how often would you use those? Can you use that more than BID? Yes, um, we will generally use that. You know, it's... Um, it's really at the family's discretion as needed. You can use it once in the morning and once before bed. You can use it as frequently as every two to three hours during the day. Um, it's a lot like when our infants have nasal saline spray for, for their viral illnesses. Um, so it's just a little bit of that extra hydration. Think about it like, you know, your croupy kid in the steam shower is just helping them, you know, to hydrate things a little bit so they can move things through. And so that kind of brings me back kind of to two pieces just to get into a little bit of um, nitty gritty stuff. So like when we, so Chris prescribes this as an outpatient, when I prescribe this as an inpatient. Um, so how often actually are you saying to do the cough assist um, when, when they were inpatient and how, and then when you do go to that outpatient regimen, what is actually the prescription you're going to write as a pulmonologist when you print out those patient instructions so like we have a really good understanding of what the timing looks like? Sure, too. absolutely. So inpatient is going to depend a bit on your resources um, and you know your staffing capabilities. I've seen as frequently as every one to two hours inpatient or as infrequently as once or twice a day. Um, the, the mechanical in exoflators are really hard to overuse. So you if you had the resources and the capabilities, you could do that every hour. Um, think about it as, as a, a child without neuromuscular weakness, how often they would cough when they're sick, right? That could be all yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, and so that's yeah. more of inpatient. We'll typically do every, every four hours or so. Um, and then for home, there's you know a baseline healthy regimen and then a sick plan. So for example, a baseline healthy may re regimen may look like twice a day. So when they first wake up after they've been sleeping, all those secretions have pooled and you get everything moving with a, with a treatment first thing in the morning. And then similarly, right before they go to bed. And then when they're sick with a respiratory viral infection or, or something like that, then we, we often instruct the families to increase to every, maybe every six hours, maybe every four hours. Generally, four hours is the maximum frequency for home just because it can be so labor intensive for, for families. Families, even if they have other supports at home, like home nursing, if they're needing it more frequently than every four, we generally recommend that they come into the hospital. You know, we, we just talked about, you know, sick care, they're coming home, they're, they're going to have a regimen, you know, as a primary care provider, as my, as the pediatrician, like how often should I be worrying about making sure that these kids profile? prophylactically should be on an airway clearance regimen. Should I say, hey, you know, my SMA kids having more issues walking this, and maybe we should really get them to PFTs and start really assessing, do we need to start doing something at home? Or is, is, is there another way which we should go about this? It's a great question. And I think similarly to the previous answer, it's going to depend a lot on your resources and your practice setting and what you have readily available to you in terms of a pulmonary um, consult or, or a pulmonary care center. I think, you know, primary care pediatricians can definitely be sort of this first line assessment of airway clearance ability. And then, you know, your local pulmonologist is, is happy to help if you need it. And we kind of talked about the sick plan, you know, the patients that go into the hospital, come out of the hospital, we've already talked about who have seen a pulmonologist, which will be a little bit different than the patients that Chris was referring to. Those patients that we say, okay, we have kind of a, 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 um, a baseline plan for them. 
this seems like now that I'm saying it out loud, it seems a little bit of a silly question, but what point do families start their sick plan? You know, is it when the, the nose starts running? Is it when they are actually in respiratory distress? You know, when would you kind of recommend, hey, it's time to go every four hours or something like that? Yeah, that can be a hard call. And we do a lot of that type of phone triage in our particular practice. I imagine a lot of, of places do. And it a lot of it depends on the family's comfort. Um, how many times have they been through this? How many times have they seen their kiddo progress from runny nose to trouble breathing? As we know, parents know their kids the best. And so they generally have the best sense of when things are ramping up. And so it does depend a little bit on each individual patient. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, and that's also, it sounds like, why they can call pulmonology in the middle of the night. It has <laughs> it has that. But also for us as primary care doctors, we should also know kind of when they give us that call. Like, yeah, it's probably time. It's probably time to do that. Um, and then the question that always came up when I was a primary care doctor in residency was, how do we actually get these devices for people. So we could talk about, oh, this is great. You know, we should be on this thing. But number one, do we need a case manager? And number two, what do I actually need to um, to actually get these things approved? I think if you have a case manager, absolutely use them. Um, what an incredible resource to have that not everybody in every practice setting does. So that that is great. Um, you know, in the, the healthcare that society that we practice in here in the States, a lot of this is is variable and depends on insurance coverage and um, location. You know, are you more rural? Are you more urban? Sort of, you know, what are the, the local resources? Um, the only, you know, few, and we touched on this earlier, the only couple sort of hard stops, so to speak, are going to be um, that diagnosis or not of bronchiectasis for certain devices. And then similarly, a sleep study um, demonstrating hypoventilation for certain uh, sleep devices. And this would ultimately be like a DME prescription to whatever the local DME company is. Is that correct? correct. Yes. This is a DME durable medical okay. equipment prescription to a home care company. Exactly. You got it. See, you know, I wasn't that good of a primary care doctor, as you can tell, you know, I, uh, I was like, all right, how do I actually get this stuff to people? Cause part of the, re you know, part about doing your job well is both to know what medicines you need and also how to get them. Because if you don't get the medicines, then it's, um, it's not doing that much good. You know, speaking of, you know, these devices and how you normally would get them, obviously people have different insurances and, and, you know, one of the things we talk often about in our podcast is we, we talk about, you know, health disparities. And do you see these types of health disparities affect our ability to treat our kids with these chronic medical conditions needing to need prophylactic devices or devices uh, on discharge? Uh, do you see this happen? Absolutely. We deal with this um, all the time with, um, you know, insurance claims, denials, appeals, um, you know, peer-to-peer -peer conversations. And that's in our patients with, you know, the, the Cadillac of insurance. And so it really does vary the, um, the types of coverage that we get, the location, like I mentioned, the local resources. So home nursing is a huge one. I know we're not um, talking about that specifically, but just the availability or not of those types of in-home supports, um, plus you know other things like language barriers, housing insecurity. These are not unique to pulmonary by any means, and so I think a lot of a lot of practitioners can probably relate to the, to some of those disparities for their patients. I'm definitely thinking about right now is you know almost every day I'm in clinic as 
you know, we're in the middle of summer and heat sores, and I'm 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 frequently signing uh, paperwork for for uh, for families to not have their electricity cut off. You know, all I can think of is these these kids who have you know some of these devices that need to have electricity to run. Probably falls under that check mark. You know, I don't know what you, you guys have in your in your states, but in mine, there's a check mark for needs to have life saving devices, and definitely f- for me, it falls under that. Yeah, absolutely. Mr. Airway did pretty good, and we gave him a um, a nice home regimen to go home on. So let's change the case up ever so slightly. So let's say Mr. Way had cystic fibrosis instead of hypotonic cerebral palsy. So CF was actually our very first episode cross, uh, crossover with the curbsiders, but a while ago. So for those who uh, who need a little reminding, so what's the difference in this case between our airway clearance regimen and the airway clearance regimen we gave air? Yeah, that is a great question. And I have sort of two two answers because I'll answer for our more classic CF patients before the use of these highly effective modulator therapies. So in our classic CF patients and some some current patients still don't qualify for these these medications. So you're dealing with a whole different mucus. You're dealing with very highly viscous mucus that is constantly caked in, in the airways. Um, and so you, we are generally much more aggressive, both with number of therapies, frequency of therapies, um, anti-inflammatories, all of those things in our kids with CF. And so it's a combination of bronchodilators, mucolytics, chest wall oscillation, um, inhaled antibiotics, or inhaled corticosteroids. And you do use inhaled corticosteroids in that patient population. Is that just because there's just nasty inflammation overall because of bronchiectasis, or is there something different that we should know about? So it depends. Um, a lot of our CF kids, and I, I don't have a great number to quote you, but there is a decent amount of um, crossover with asthma. And so for the most part, it is to treat a diagnosis of asthma in our CF patients. Um, there's no strong data from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation to use inhaled corticosteroids without an asthma diagnosis, but it's a, a bit more prevalent. Actually, that brings up a good question. So we've talked a lot about, okay, bronchodilators definitely when you have asthma, inhaled corticosteroids only when you have asthma. A lot of these kids might have asthma. And these kids often don't have the, um, they're not neurotypical to the point where they can follow instructions to go do PFTs for us. And this might just be a clinical pulmonologist decision at the end of the day. But I mean, really the question is, how do I know whether these kids do or don't have asthma? Because they're going to be hospitalized for their respiratory distress pretty much every single time, because if they can't clear any of these increased secretions or, you know, or they got small airways or inflammation, whatever it may be. So should I just presume that they have asthma or how do I make that diagnosis? Yeah, that's such a great question. And people can go back and listen to your fantastic asthma episode. And so kids who can't give you PFTs, right, whether it's age or cooperation or something else, you can absolutely diagnose asthma without documented reversibility of airflow obstruction on pulmonary function testing because it's it's in the history and it's in the, the illness pattern. So are they coughing in their sleep at nighttime? Are they coughing or wheezing? Remember, not all asthma wheezes, especially children. So I often ask, are they coughing when they're more excited? So even if they're not neurotypical to the point where they're running track and field, they're still going to get excited and they're going to be happy at certain times and a bit more interactive. Um, and so are they coughing more when they're excited or when they're laughing? Or do they always wheeze when they get a respiratory virus? You know, that's going to be a little age dependent too. And we could talk about viral induced wheezing versus asthma all day. Um, But it's in the history when you don't have the PFTs. And would you feel comfortable if I made 
a, I, I know for plenty of patients that are, you know, um, that don't have impaired uh, clearance, we make diagnosis of asthma based on, hey, this has been your third admission, you know, with, with you know, wheezing with associated respiratory virus and respiratory distress. So I think you really have a diagnosis of asthma based on your family history. Do you feel comfortable with me making that decision as an inpatient or or even a primary care doctor? Um, or was it say, hey, with it's this nuance, probably should see a pulmonologist? I 100% would empower primary care docs, inpatient docs to make an asthma diagnosis based on clinical history. I trust yeah, so you maybe saying. I'm giving... Oh, thank you. Thank you. So maybe I am giving inhaled corticosteroids, but I am giving it because it's a diagnosis of asthma. Um, and I feel good about that. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I feel very empowered today. This is great. <laughs> so what are your take-home points for our listeners? Yeah, so I would say number one, you can't move mucus without airflow. So you have to maximize your airflow. And we talked about a variety of different ways to do that with different devices. Um, number two, I would say most mucolytic drugs are not demonstrated to be helpful outside of cystic fibrosis or non-CF bronchiectasis. And finally, do not ignore the impact of chronic pulmonary aspiration. Absolutely. Those sound like exactly the points that we talked about and also um, will help us all uh, try to really perform this type of mucociliary clearance, try to really do all of our, um, both of our medicines, both our non-pharmacologic agents, kind of do all of these things together. Um, and that maybe we can do the first step without involving our pulmonologist right away. Um, but in the meantime, do you have anything else you'd like to plug? You know, I think just pulmonary fellowship. I think it's the best specialty. You get to learn amazing physiology. You get inpatient, you get outpatient, you get to do procedures, you get to manage ventilators, but you don't have to be in the ICU all the time. And you get to build <laughs> these long-term relationships with your patients, which is really rewarding. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming uh, on the Cribsiders. This episode was excellent. It should be used for, useful for every single person, regardless of level of training. Um, and, uh, and thank you again. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So this has been another episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids! Yeah, get your show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app you have. Or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode and our wonderful showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazer, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So I've been Sam Mazer. And this has been Chris the Chiman Chu. And if you made it this far, I will now give a nice AI poem based on the topic today, which special treat for the people who listen all the way to the end. What, what do you think about that, Sam? All right, let's, let's hear it. The child's airways, so small and frail, must be kept clear lest they fail. With techniques both old and new, we can help the child to breathe through. With huffing and with coughing, with clapping and with pounding, we can loosen and remove the mucus that's a nuisance. With positive expiratory pressure, we can help the child to clear the airways of all that's there so they can breathe without despair. With these techniques and more, we can help the child to soar, to live a life that's free and full with no more need for a, a pull. So, that's, so, so let's not forget the child with airways so small and mild. Let's use our skills to help them breathe and let them live their life to the fullest degree. Thank you. <laughs> have a good night, everyone. The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... 
Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.